You are listening to a pre-recorded program of Safety Wars. This was recorded earlier today. Hi, this is Jim from Safety Wars. Before we start the program, I want to make sure everyone understands that we often talk about OSHA and EPA citations, along with some other regulatory actions from other agencies, legal cases, and criminal activity. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Proposed fines are exactly that, and they are often litigated, reduced, or vacated. We use available public records, news accounts, and press releases. We cannot warranty or guarantee the details of any of the stories we share, since we are not directly involved with these stories, at least not most of the time. Enjoy the show. This, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. And welcome to Safety Wars for Wednesday, March 22nd, 2023. Exciting week this week. We are releasing the interviews from the International Conference on Climate Change sponsored by the Heartland Institute last month in Orlando, Florida. We'll just say we are the loyal opposition, right? To what's going on with the policy. I don't, uh, I think from, I don't have to give a nuanced thing. I think, uh, from day one, I thought that a lot of this stuff was suspect, not thought out, and there might be some other th- stuff going on in the background. I got involved in the environmental movement and in safety to protect human life and to protect the planet. There's a lot of debate here, and I don't like the idea of consensus. Consensus. Consensus being the key. Consensus being this. Consensus being that. I want to, you know, try to get to fact here. So uh, I do uh, give alternative views. Some I agree with, some of them I don't agree with. Some of them are harsh, harsher than maybe I would prefer. But anyway, that's what we do here with Safety Wars. Remember, if you're a practitioner of human and organizational performance, you're already going against the grain on a lot of stuff out there. So how's everybody doing? We're back here. Uh, I have a lot of personal obligations this week that I uh, that preclude me from doing these shows live. We'll be back to really live uh, starting tomorrow. That's Thursday, March 23rd. And that's all I got here. So we're going to go right off to it uh, here with uh, OSHA News uh, here. Right? So... U.S. OSHA to hold an online meeting of the, and I'm reading off the press release page, OSHA to hold an online meeting of the National Advisory Committee on Occupational Safety and Health Heat Work Group on April 27th. So OSHA will hold an online meeting for this advisory committee on April 27th from 2 to 4 Eastern Time. The tentative meeting agenda includes proposed recommendations on potential elements of the heat injury and illness prevention rulemaking in the work group's presentation at an upcoming NACOSH meeting. And you can find details on the OSHA website under the news section. So uh, I think this is, um, if you're a health and safety professional or an interested party, this is probably one of the meetings you want to be in because I tell you what, this has wide-ranging implications in all workplaces, the whole heat stress uh, uh, phenomenon, I guess we're calling that, or issue. Federal investigation team of teen workers fall in from Newcastle store roof finds a Georgia contractor violated child labor, overtime, and work safety news. The company paid nearly $100,000 in back wages, penalties, and $16,000 in OSHA fines. A federal investigation into why a 17-year-old worker uh, who fell 24 feet from the roof of a home in Newcastle, Pennsylvania in October 2022 was doing work that violated child labor laws. I think uh, this was on our... We covered this. Uh, No, we didn't. No, no. I'm thinking another one. This happens so often it's hard to keep track of them. All right. Was doing work that violated child labor laws led to a wider review of 
into how the roofing company failed to pay 30 employees their full wages and expose other workers to dangerous fall hazards. So, in a lot of states, construction work is illegal for anyone under 18, believe it or not. They're no, it's normally regulated by the State uh, Department of Labor for whatever jurisdiction you're in. The young workers sustained minor injuries after the fall. Uh, no, I'll say this much. Probably he sustained minor injuries because he was 17 years old. Right? And they're able to bounce back with that. The division recovered $92,640 in back wages for affected workers. So, you know, they start going there. And this is along the lines of your uh, of someone investigating one thing and then all of a sudden finding out something else. And what they were doing was they're probably paying everybody off the books and misclassify them as independent contractors, as in uh, 1099 uh, independent contractors. So essentially what happened was if we all know that if you are, those people try to get cute here. If you are an independent contractor, you do not have to abide by OSHA regulations. And that was, I'm going to guess that that was probably what, no, what one paying them off the books. Number two, hey, I don't have to, uh, 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 you know, pay them overtime. I don't have to uh, obey OSHA regulations. I don't have to do Guvno and helping these people. So, uh, so the company, this is here, uh, violated, uh, ignored child labor laws and hired an underage employee to do prohibitive roofing work. In reviewing this incident, our investigators then determined that the employer shortchanged workers an average of 3000 per employee and earned overtime by misclassifying them as independent contractors. So this is what you need to be aware of, especially if you're a safety professional uh, on especially these smaller construction sites that you think you're off the uh, hook on. Uh, I did an investigation of an accident in Florida, I'm sorry, not Florida, Colorado, where a similar thing happened, where an underage person fell and was injured on a construction site. Uh, putting a child to work on a roof is irresponsible, according to a violation of federal safety laws, said OSHA Area Director Brendan Claiborne in Erie, Pennsylvania. Fall hazards are well known by employers, and they remain a leading cause of serious injury and deaths in the construction industry. So that's uh, now let's say you're working on a home, you know, uh, you hire someone for a house, uh, for working on your house, and they have underage roofers there. Happens all the time. Right, I see this, in a, especially in my area. I, yeah, I report it uh, to uh, whoever, but you know, uh, you, you see, you know, you see this stuff. U.S. Department of Labor Power Generation Workgroup Alliance promotes importance of safety for workers. Stresses training safe work practices aligned with federal and industry standards. U.S. Department of Labor and Power Generation Voluntary PP Working Group. Uh, those are the participants. So they're teaming up, and this is uh, from uh, uh, March 10th. So among two, the two-year alliance goals is the development of a qualified electrical worker training program to develop best practices for protecting the safety and well-being of employees working near high voltage. So you're able, so what's uh, the alliance program? OSHA has this alliance program where they try to partner with unions, consulates, trade or, or professional organizations, businesses, faith and community-based organizations, to name a couple, to try to get together uh, with a compliance assistance. So uh, no, that's what they're doing there at the agency. U.S. Department of Labor certifies Maine's, complete, Maine's completion of developmental steps of occupational safety and health plan for state and local government workers. So uh, the U.S. Department of Labor announced that OSHA has certified the completion of all structural and development aspects of Maine's state plan for protecting the safety and health of state and local workers. Well, that's good that they're going to have that, but I hope they're more successful than some of the other states where uh, they basically, it's all a joke and they ignore everything. Uh, especially with some of the stuff during COVID, uh, here in New York and in some of the other states, uh, the, uh, no, the state 
pretty much remained silent for their own workforce when it came to uh, COVID compliance and COVID protection and everything else. Uh, again, you know, I you're going to hear on the upcoming interview with James Taylor of the Heartland Institute in a couple of minutes here on uh, sovereign immunity. Do is this? Do we have to reconsider sovereign immunity for government officials, government uh, employees, uh, politicians who are not uh, no who have these plans who are not obeying them that are okay. Hey, we're not going to do whatever. Uh, no, I covered, we covered a story last week here over a confined space entry thing over in uh, Westchester County, New York, 10 years ago. The, they, the town knowingly put people at risk, knowingly died. Uh, no, I related this to an old, to an old newspaper clipping on where my cousin passed away in a confined space. Well, guess what? No one's held responsible. That those uh, people who were managing that work, right, ignored, didn't do training, didn't have the right equipment or anything else for that. Anyone go to jail for that? I don't know. Again, sovereign immunity needs to be revisited with this stuff. Uh, forced compliance and protecting government workers—they have a right to go home too. To their families and or they don't have a family to go home and do whatever they're supposed to do this is from uh today was world water day uh there was a statement issued by epa administrator michael s regan in celebration of world water day the epa administrator administrator this is from the epa press office issued the following statement this World Water Day, I encourage everyone to take a moment to consider how truly fundamental clean water is to the health of our communities and our environment. Clean water is vital for all life on Earth. It supports healthy people, thriving communities, and productive agriculture. I tell you what, in my undergrad work, I focus on soil and water resources. And I tell you what, soil, right, the whole world uh, no, revolves around about eight inches, roughly, of topsoil to feed the entire planet, right? Uh, us on the land. With the sea, it's the same deal, all right? If you don't have clean water, you don't have soil that's protected, you don't have, you don't, no, we're, we're pretty much done as a society. They talk about the bees and alleged that alleged, uh, a quote from Albert Einstein that without the bees, we're all going to die because of pollination. Well, guess what? We, uh, our biggest issue on this planet, water resources, right? Whether it's in the ocean, lakes, drinking water and everything, protecting those resources, that water resources and the soil. So, uh, no, we got into a debate with the whole thing. Oh, by the way, I wanted to thank Ian Punnett for having me on Coast to Coast AM last Saturday night with an update on the whole uh, East Palestine, Ohio thing uh, situation. That whole situation, books will be written about it. Great case study on how to do things and how not to do things. I think they're handling it correctly. Uh, I w just wish they would release more analytical information for the community uh, and for interested people like I do. I hate to go through a Freedom of Information Act request for things. So uh, what does this come down to? All across this country, this is from the newsreels, millions of Americans lack access to clean water. But thanks to President Biden's leadership, we are making the single largest investment in water infrastructure in the history of our country. The bipartisan infrastructure law provides EPA with more than $50 billion to revitalize our nation's drinking wastewater and stormwater systems. I'm involved right now with a uh, uh, sewage treatment plant refurb, uh, not being funded by this uh, thing, but very important uh, sewage treatment and everything else. The Justice Department and the Commonwealth of Massachusetts have entered into a consent decree with the city of Holyoke, Massachusetts, resolved the Clean Water Act and Massachusetts state law. Uh, doesn't make sense, right? Uh, whatever. 
The proposed consent decree calls for Holyoke to take further remedial action to reduce ongoing sewage discharges. Here is another one. Into the Connecticut River from the city's sewage uh, collection and stormwater systems. A deta- as detailed in the consent decree, Holyoke discharges pollutants from combined sewer overflow into the Connecticut River in violation of its uh, permit issued by the state and feds. Here's another one that I was talking about, right? Private industry does it. There'd probably be a bigger issue than this. A combined sewer system collects uh, uh, rainwater runoff, domestic sewage, and industrial wastewater into one pipe. Under normal conditions, it transports all the wastewater to a sewage treatment plant for treatment before discharging into a water body. However, during part of periods of heavy rain, the wastewater volume can exceed the carrying capacity of the sewer system or treatment facility, resulting in the discharge from untreated wastewater to the Connecticut River. So, it's a major source of uh, water pollution because it contains raw sewage. Wuvenal. So it goes on and on and on here. So, okay, that's great. They're finally getting around to it. EPA settlement with Cold Storage Warehouse and Distribution Company helps make New Bedford and Hartford communities safer. This is out of Massachusetts again. A Cold Storage Warehouse and Distribution Company and its subsidiaries has paid penalties of over $195,000 in settle claims by the U.S. EPA that it violated federal laws regulating companies that handle hazardous chemicals relating to its use of ammonia at facilities in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and East Hartford, Connecticut. The company will, perform, will also perform supplemental environmental projects worth about $163,000 that make safety upgrades to its facilities and provide local first responders with emergency response equipment and training. EPA's action underscores the importance of the safe handling and management of hazardous substances like anhydrous ammonia, and when a company like I'm not going to mention the name of it, does not comply with its safety obligations. It threatens the safety of our communities, said New England Regional Administrator David W. Cash. EPA's work is designed to protect all communities from chemical releases, and we have a special responsibility to reduce the burden of environmental pollution and risks of chemical accidents to the workers and residents of, the, of communities that have shouldered a great share of these impacts. This place clearly illustrates the critical importance of complying with chemical accident planning, prevention, and mitigation requirements. And on to our next story. EPA settles claims with six California animal, fat, and vegetable oil companies. Today, the EPA, a lot of EPA news today, uh, announced settlements with six California companies for claims they failed to comply with spill prevention, control, and countermeasures. That's SPCC for short. Requirements for handling oil under the Clean Water Act. The payments in the United States under these settlements range from uh, $1,000 to $175,000. Facilities must comply with federal clean water uh, requirements, uh, said EPA Pacific Southwest Regional Administrator Martha Guzman. To protect our communities and waterways, it is imperative that companies managing oil take actions to prevent and ensure they're prepared for the possibility of spills. So uh, this is another thing. A lot of people feel that because these go into our foods, there are, it's not a pollutant. Well, okay, may go into our foods a lot of these things. However, that look at what, uh, uh, no, is it toxic to the environment? Is it toxic to wildlife? Absolutely. So, therefore, it's regulated. Real simple. EPA spill-related requirements help facilities handling animal fats and vegetable oils prevent discharges into navigable waters or onto adjoining shorelines. Hold on here. Okay. And we're going to break for commercials here. In the professional safety community, communication and planning are just a few keys to your program's success. The question many practitioners have is, where do I start? 
Dr. Jay Allen, the creator of the Safety FM platform and host of the Rated R Safety Show, has built a global foundation to help you along the way. Go to safetyfm.com and listen to some of the industry's best and most involved professionals, including Blaine Hoffman with the Safety Pro, Sam Goodman with the Hop Nerd, Sheldon Primus with the Safety Consultant, Jim Pozell with Safety Wars, Emily Elrod with Unapologetically Bold, and many others. As individuals, we can do great things, but as a team, we become amazing. Dial into safetyfm.com today and surround yourself with a powerful force of knowledge and support. to safety wars tomorrow safety today okay we are back here we are back uh so what else do we want to talk about no more epa news epa announces clean air act violations from the permian basin company the u.s epa issued a consent agreement and final order to a company for emissions from storage tanks that epa identified using a helicopter equipped with a special infrared camera that detects hydrocarbon leaks and for the construction of facilities prior to permit approval so uh this is all in new mexico hey uh it is what it is i mean they have remote sensing equipment they have drones they have everything else Wall Street Journal uh, today. Russia-Ukraine war threatens to trigger a nuclear arms race. The war in Ukraine has accelerated the unraveling of the international arms control architecture painstakingly constructed from the gold, Cold War onward. Heightening concern among experts that a new nuclear arms race could emerge as decades of restraint on the numbers of nuclear weapons collapses. Russian President Vladimir Putin said last month that Moscow was suspending the application of the New START Agreement, one of the last arms control treaties still operating. The treaty limits the numbers of strategic nuclear weapons deployed by Russia and the U.S. His announcement follows repeatedly, uh, repeated thinly veiled threats from Moscow on his readiness to use nuclear weapons. Let's remember, it's in their doctrine that if they're going to lose, then nuclear weapons are on the table so to speak. So uh, let's talk about this for a second. Last week, we had a, uh, uh, I was listening to an interview of a uh, commentator on a demographer. And one of the things that we have in the West that nobody wants to talk about is the birth rate, Right. Birth rate, uh, the reason why we have a, a successful economy, and we have it for many reasons, right? Property rights. But one of them is is that we have uh, a growing population. That's not how it is elsewhere in the world. There's a lot of places out there where they do not have, uh, they just don't have the uh, uh, population right, for uh, for an economy or anything else. And one of the theories of why we have issues with, uh, no, we have this war going on there in Ukraine is that the uh, 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 Russia does not have, right, I'm doing like three things at one time here. Russia does not have the population to sustain uh, a, a long-term conflict in the future. That the population is right to have a war, so you're able to sustain it now. In 10 years, they're not going to have men, predominantly men, uh, out there uh, fighting wars. So what does this mean? It means real simple. Uh, it's real simple. They're going to have, uh, give me a second here. They're going to not have the manpower available. All right. Number one. And number two, what, what are they going to do? They're going to go to automated systems. All right. They're going to go to 
no automated systems. They're going to go to uh, uh, nuclear uh, technology to support this. This is what one of the uh, what one of the uh, uh, theories is on this. So I don't know. It's something that we have to uh, consider here with this. And no, I, I have stories lined up here. No with all different types of stuff related to the war. We have G to Putin, Russia, and China are driving change for the Sahads and Avin in 100 years. So here we have China now involved in this and it's been going on for, you know, pulling uh, strings in the back, right? I don't know. I'm not into conspiracy theories, but some stuff to ponder here. What's What exactly is going on? So uh, we're going to go to some pre-recorded, more pre-recorded stuff. We're going to have the James Taylor of the Heartland Institute interview, and we're going to have one of my previous podcasts on here. So I look forward to seeing you tomorrow night. Have fun, everybody. Anyway, we have... Mr. James Taylor here. What is your title with the Heartland Institute? Because I remember we more or less started our official uh, involvement in uh, the environmental stuff, at least at the same time the public. Sure. Thing. So what, I know you started out as a student. I believe, right? And then, or uh, what first job at a college, and then eventually you moved on up in the organization. Well, I'm, I'm currently president of the Heartland Institute. I've been president for the past three years. I joined Heartland in 2001. Uh, I was uh, I brought was brought on board to be the managing editor of Environment and Climate News, which is our monthly publication that we send to legislators all around the country. Fantastic and yeah. Oh, I'm glad you do. So, yeah, I've been there for 20 years overseeing energy, environment, and climate policy. Joe Bast was our founding president. Finally, after many decades of giving every ounce of energy he had to the Heartland Institute, uh, he said, okay, I've done my time, and now I'm going to relax and enjoy the rest of life, and I became president soon thereafter. Absolutely. Congratulations on that. Uh, like I said, you helped, uh, I mentioned you probably don't remember this. I met you in, at the first one of these. Okay. In, uh, when was it, 2008? 2008. Yeah, or in uh, Marion Marquis in New York. That, and I said, if it weren't for you guys, I probably wouldn't have ever have had a graduate degree in environmental policy. Wow. So, it was all reading the alternative views. Uh, they should be mainstream, in my opinion. Uh, but you folks, uh, tell me about the Heartland Institute. I don't want to tell us. Yeah, I'll tell you about Heartland, and then I'll tell you a little bit about how I came to my views on this topic. But the Heartland Institute is a free market public policy organization. Uh, we were founded in 1984. We're based outside Chicago. We are national in scope and really international sometimes in the issues. But our target audience is legislators at the state level. Although if you're watching Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, whatever it may be, the issues tend to be all national. But really the policies that make a difference in our lives, the COVID policies, whether it's the lockdowns or the, you know, the face masks or whatever it may be, uh, energy, whether you're having renewable energy mandates in your states or not, these are all set at the state level. And so it's an overlooked area of uh, policy that we really need to, to pay attention to. At the Heartland Institute, that's where we focus primarily. Uh, we got involved in climate change because the uh, prescribed solutions were all the big government solutions that had been advanced for many other reasons in the past. And we wanted to look under the hood to make sure that, indeed, uh, the science justifies these policy prescriptions. If the planet is being burned up, if we're really risking some type of climate crisis catastrophe, yes, you have to do what you have to do. But let's make sure that the science supports it, and the science doesn't. Which gets to why I became uh, an advocate for climate realism. When I was in law school at Syracuse University, I was editor-in-chief of the Federalist Voice at Syracuse Law School. Now, I had, as an undergraduate at Dartmouth College, I'd taken a number of atmospheric science courses. At this time, this is when the global warming issue was becoming prominent. And I decided that even though most of my fellow uh, freedom lovers, uh, conservatives, libertarians, free marketers, were skeptical of needing to do something, I said, well, look, again, if the planet's burning up, you got to do what you got to do. And I wanted to write an article in the Federalist Voice making the case for that. 
But the more I looked into the data and I knew where to go because I'd taken these courses, I realized, wait a second. And the data shows we're causing some modest warming and the warming is not going to be rapid. It's not going to be catastrophic. It's likely to be beneficial. And that's why uh, I came to the view that I hold today and the Heartland Institute does as well. It's hard to define an exact beginning of this whole thing, uh, but most people uh, really study this. Ariana Savant or Savant Ariana in the late 1800s with the literal back of the envelope calculations he reportedly did mm -hmm. with carbon emissions sure. and everything. He said this is going to be the greatest thing ever because he's from Northern Europe or Sweden, I believe it was. And, uh, you know, this is going to be a great thing. We're not going to have such a bad winter. Right. And then it just morphed into this whole thing over the next hundred years. And, and, and you know, your example illustrates a very important fact that people overlook, and that is according to climate change models, models, the accepted models from the quote-unquote mainstream, the people who believe in a crisis, even their models, they predict, and the reality has validated, that most of the warming that's going to occur, that's caused by human beings by more carbon dioxide, is going to occur near the poles during the winter and at nighttime. It's not like you're getting this uniform baking of the planet and near the, near the equator, you're getting all sorts of extra heat. The warmth that we're getting basically makes the coldest nights in Siberia and the coldest nights in northern Alaska makes them a little less frigid. Still frigid, but a little less so. That's where you're seeing most of the quote-unquote warming. That's beneficial. That's a good thing. So you, uh, the Heartland Institute for here is obviously climate, climate change. That's the issue for this week. For your folks, and I know uh, been, you've been planning this out for an awful long time. Uh, my wife's an event meeting planner, so I get the idea how how much we're in advance. We also have school reform news. Mm -hmm. You have uh, tax policy, budget and tax budget news, health yeah, health care news. The common theme for all of the uh, publications is pretty much the same as environment and climate news and everything else you do with the environment. Yeah, yeah. So we're most known for our climate change work, and I'm glad that that's the case. That's my area of greatest interest. But Heartland has, since before I even joined Heartland, we've uh, tackled an, a number of issues that are relevant to public policy and policymakers. And you mentioned budget and tax, education, school reform news, healthcare news. And what we look for is the freedom-oriented solutions, the freedom-oriented paths to better public policy. Now, those have historically been our main topical areas, but we address much more. We were taking the lead, fighting back against big tech censoring free speech of American citizens. We've been fighting back against the ESG agenda, environment, social, and governance agenda that's going to require companies to meet the socialist um, what's the word? redistributionist goals of the United Nations. So across the board, that's what we do. We, we stand up for freedom. Well, that last, uh, when he asked G, as directly, with us, we deal with mostly OSHA, occupational safety and health stuff. I've had an interest in this since I'm 1986, since I'm 15 years old. When I used to call it the greenhouse effect, mm -hmm. right back in those days. Uh, Specifically with ESG, that impacts a lot of health and safety stuff because we're usually tasked, the certified safety professionals and others in there, with writing those documents, believe it or not. I've had to write a number of them painstakingly because I don't agree with them. At the expense of making your workplace more safe, the time and resources that you could be devoting to that. Yes, uh, but... Uh, what we find is that when managing safety especially, everybody's a libertarian because you're in charge of your own safety. You're going to be uh, uh, adjusting your work habits for safety because most people don't want to go to work to get hurt. There are some, believe me, <laughs> I can tell you there are people. I've known happens. people like that. All right. And I think, you know, what you guys are saying is actually the way people live their lives. They live their lives as libertarians. They live their lives, they don't want involvement from anybody, they just want to go have clean air, clean water, clean everything. Uh, and that's all I'll say on that, but any comment on the uh, train derailment over in East Palestine, Ohio? Oh my goodness, you have a federal government that supposedly is there to 
hopefully keep such uh, events from happening, but when they do happen, to lend assistance. And even if you can't do everything that you'd like to do uh, materially on the ground to help people, maybe to lend some support by having the president show up as when a hurricane comes aground and produces great devastation, the president, whoever uh, he has been, would typically go there. You have an administration that wants to pretend it doesn't happen, it didn't happen, probably because the region hit is an area that doesn't vote Democrat. It's kind of like, screw you, because, well, you're not one of us. Also, they realize by showing up, it calls attention to the fact that this could have been preventable. But it's, it's a shame that basically in those two ways, you have the current administration playing politics with people's lives. And, and, and worse yet, when they're telling people it's safe to be in a community where fish or you see mass fish deaths because of the chemicals, the people are saying they can barely breathe, they're coughing, they're having a hard time doing this. Aren't these people, when I say these people, uh, you have Democrat, a Democrat in the White House, the Democratic Party, the environmental agenda that they always say that they are promoting, aren't these the people that are supposed to be fighting to preserve a healthy environment, that are supposed to be the first ones to say, hey, if there's any doubt at all, then we're going to side with not allowing any of this pollution or whatever else. When it's on their watch, oh, no, 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 it's fine. Go in there, keep living there, and die. That's basically what they're saying. Just don't blame us. So what would be... What do you see being the best solution to this whole thing? Other than obviously it needs to be cleaned up and everything else. As far as legislation, regulations, when you see the court system, this, uh, what would be the most effective means I'm trying to prevent this? Yeah, I, I, th- I, I think one of the best ways to prevent this in the future is to focus on what you should be doing. So you have every branch of the federal government now under Joe Biden who sees its highest priority as fighting climate change. Pete Buttigieg says that every transportation decision is a climate decision. Climate will be you know, the leading factor in everything we do. This is something that in every branch of the government, if you decide to do what you're supposed to do, then these things aren't going to happen. Uh, right now, and let me pull this up. I have this uh, EPA news release. It's just from today. Okay. All right. And uh, I was going to discuss it. I discussed each from every one of these from uh, the EPA. Usually, every I broadcast five times a week, usually four or five times, and I go through all of these. Here we have the uh, one of the headlines. Uh, by the bipartisan recently passed bipartisan infrastructure infrastructure law. I'm looking at over a dozen press releases this week from the EPA alone. When that law was passed, how much money they're going this infrastructure stuff. Right, they, they label it as infrastructure. It's all climate change. Yeah, it's environmental stuff. Right. Right. And it's just, yeah, and, and another example, our school system. When you look at the money that the left is devoting to education and they say, oh, we need this for the students, you look at what the expenditures are. It's putting solar panels on the grounds of schools. It's replacing, electric, uh, replacing regular school buses with electric school buses, even when the current ones are fine. You don't need new school buses. You're taking money that could go to educating students, and instead you want to benefits your donors in the renewable energy industry. So the same thing here with the, with the transportation infrastructure bill. As you point out, if their priority was keeping our infrastructure top of the line, keeping things safe, making sure that the money's going where you say it's going by the title of the bill, these things don't happen. But that's not their priority. Most of what you see coming from the federal government is a Trojan horse for climate change activism and the ESG agenda. So, in your view... Where should the uh, EPAs, BEP, whatever your local state agency, where should the priorities lie? Uh, uh, now, if you were running the show, where would the priorities lie? Uh, what this would it be? Uh, general air pollution, water pollution, wildlife, 
anything like this? Where would the priorities be? Yeah, that's yeah, that's a great question because people who grew up in the '70s. Uh, before climate change was an issue. Back then, of course, we were fearing the next ice age being brought on, ironically enough, they said, by human use of fossil fuels and industrial activity. That's literally what they said. But back then, to be an environmentalist meant that you were, meant that you were trying to conserve land from being developed. You were trying to protect the habitat of species. You wanted to have cleaner water and cleaner air from things that actually are pollutants. So if you have particles in the air that make it more difficult to breathe, uh, you know, whether it's going to be soot, whether it's going to be sulfur dioxide that harms uh, plants and trees, that is what an environmentalist is. And you can make the argument that in some of their uh, campaigns, they went a little too far or they were using science that wasn't there, but at least they were looking to protect the environment as opposed to now the environmental movement, as it has become, wants you to believe that the only thing that affects the environment is carbon dioxide. So, wind turbines. To replace a conventional power plant, you need 300 square miles of wind turbines. And they say, fine, let's do that. Let's slice to death millions of birds and bats each and every year, including many endangered species. And that is a fact. We're talking in the millions each year in America for the altar of carbon dioxide emissions. That's not being an environmentalist. That's being a stooge for the renewable power industry. Well, there's a huge uh, issue going on where I'm from. I'm from the New York, New Jersey area uh, with the wind, offshore windmills. And I don't believe that they scientifically have linked the two, but we've had a lot of whale deaths oh, yeah. off the coast. I mean, it's... Every day a whale, it seems, for the last month and a half. It's been washing up somewhere in New Jersey or Long Island. We even had one in Brooklyn, New York, right in the heart, right in New York City wash up yeah. on those beaches. Uh, any thoughts on that? Well, what you have is a 400% increase in whale deaths off the Atlantic coast that coincides exactly with the proliferation of offshore wind turbine projects. And the proposal is to add more and more of these wind turbine projects. It is amazing that, for example, groups like Greenpeace, whose signature um, agenda back in the 1970s was saving the whales, that they go out and they try everything possible to say, oh, no, there's nothing to worry about. Oh, it's disinformation to link the two. What do you mean it's disinformation? It's right there in front of your eyes. The wind turbines are built. The whales, who, by the way, rely upon sonar, as far as getting from place to place and also from, uh, from, from getting food, for identifying where you know, the, the, the krill and the plankton are, that entire sonar system for theirs is disrupted by all of the pounding on the ocean floor to put in the pilings for the wind turbines, for the wind turbines' blades themselves, which make a tremendous amount of noise. It, it, it's, it's quite a stretch to even assert that it's, possible that there's no linkage and for them to come out them being greenpeace and other established environmental groups who make all their money by fighting climate change uh to come out and say oh there's no science whatsoever oh there absolutely is science because we know how whales operate and we know what's going on and it's an absolute travesty unbelievable yeah. I, I know it's uh we can't we uh, just can't believe especially out of new york off long island all these whales uh, coming up. I mean, uh, we've done such a good job for cleaning up the water in, in and around New York. Bipartisan issues, you know, came together with better environmental programs and everything else. I remember growing up in the shadow of the Fresh Hills landfill and there being acres of plastic garbage in the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, my father, who recently passed away, was shocked that they were pulling out stripers four or five foot long off of the Woodbridge, New Jersey fishing pier. Now they call it a fishing pier. Wow. Now it's a fishing pier. You can actually see five or six feet down into the water, which you weren't able to do that but And you know, now we're impeding those all these gains we seem to be impeding with all the other development with the offshore right. projects and everything else. It's sickening. 
Right. I, I, I went to law school in Syracuse, and I remember the landfill problems, the toxicity problems. Those are environmental issues that we should be devoting time, attention, and resources to. And those are the types of projects that now sit on the back burner that are killing people, that are polluting the environment, that are killing animals, destroying ecosystems, while we talk about carbon dioxide. I'm going to give you a little bit of an off-the-wall question that you probably never had, and you never had. And if you want to take a second to think about okay. it, uh, one of the issues uh, uh, that I mentioned and I talk about with government policy is the idea of sovereign immunity. Okay. An imminent domain sovereign immunity. Where a lot of times we have uh, government work. So look, we, if we made the same decisions in private industry as far as effluent discharges, the way we handle environmental issues and everything else, if we made those, if we... Well, we make certain decisions. We're wrong. I'm an environmental professional. I could go to jail, get fined, get sanctioned, and everything else. Government makes the same decisions. Nothing happens. Yeah. I mean, now we're having an issue with drinking water in Mississippi, and then in Flint, Michigan, there's some convictions that were just a slap on the wrist. Do you have any comments on that? Because I think, yeah. for me personally, I, I see a problem, especially when I've done environmental cleanups, and you get directions... Uh, that are like, well, we're not going to do that. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And, and sovereign immunity, uh, essentially you cannot sue the government. The government is sovereign. Uh, the rationale for that is you can't have people just willy-nilly suing the government for little things that we have ceded power to the government to do. So the, the point of that is one that's well understood. The problem is, is that you have government and government officials that wield that instead of as a small protective shield uh, to give them the ability to govern without you know, too much hassle, to wield it now as a club, to base, you know, basically how, how the federal government classifies anything and everything, whether it's really a risk of national security that it comes out or not, because they just simply don't want you to know. Sovereign immunity. Well, you know what? We just want to protect ourselves so that therefore, even if we engage in gross negligence, even if we engage in conduct that should be punished, oh, sovereign immunity. So I think you have a good point that the principle of sovereign immunity may be necessary. And, and as a libertarian, I think it should be very restricted. But nevertheless, as someone who believes that some government's necessary, there's probably some sovereign immunity that's necessary. But it is way out of control. We're now you have no repercussions, no responsibility, and worse yet, there is no making people whole, no compensating them. Some things you just can't compensate, but you do your best. But there is no obligation, and when there's no obligation, there never happens when government makes an effort to make people whole when they, who they have abused and who have suffered because of bad decisions on government's part. And that's a great point. So, um... I don't want to monopolize your time here, obviously. I just have one more question. Where do you see your organization or the movement that we're involved with here in 10 years? Not being that maybe it's going to be fine. Well, we'll be uh, hopefully being very nimble to adjust to issues that come up, for example, last year, in tw well, I guess it's two years now, 2021, when big tech censorship was an issue. Uh, we at the Heartland Institute jumped right in to make sure that people's freedom of speech was preserved. We fought big tech in the state legislatures. We fought them in the courts. We prevailed. Hopefully we'll have the foresight to get ahead of issues so that uh, we may be nimble when they come up, but hopefully we'll, we'll be able to keep them from becoming uh, problems in the first place. But unfortunately, the fight to preserve and defend and stand up for freedom is one that's never-ending because there are always people that want to take it away from us. So we'll be doing what we're doing now, and hopefully we'll be doing it better and better in each and every year. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Taylor, James Taylor, President of the Heartland Institute. Thank you for spending some time with us. Thank you, Jim. Been a pleasure. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Me too. Keep up the fight. This, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Warning, the following broadcast contains adult language, adult content, frank safety discussions, and stories that might sound unbelievable. But believe me, every one of those stories is true. We didn't start the safety war, but we are going to fight to win it. For our families, for our communities, for our workplaces, and for our lives. Hi, this is Jim Polzel with Safety Wars. Today we're going to take on a little bit more of a serious topic on our 
broadcast here, or podcast, whatever we're calling it, mental health. So for the month of the September, we always have a theme of disaster preparation, and that's in line with the United States. It's Disaster Preparation Month, among other things. And we talk about all different types of scenarios, water safety, food preparation, things of that nature. Today, we're going to talk specifically about suicide. This week is construction in the construction industry is Suicide Awareness Week in the United States. And I just wanted to put out there a couple of comments here. Safety Wars was set up in part to address a lot of the issues nobody wanted to talk about. So in our podcast, what have we spoken about? And I'll have the links down below in the comments section. We talk about psychopaths in the workplace. We talk about gaslighting. We talk about how to manage situations. We also discuss what uh, safety professionals specifically have to deal with as far as pushback from whatever corporate culture they're in often and the different tactics. These are all meant to address a lot of the things that we deal with and also mental health issues because a lot of safety professionals are mentally abused. I'm sorry, it's the way it is. A big problem with depression, especially in what I observe. So what does it come down to? You're a person who is often thrown into a situation with little or no authority. So you have no authority to hire people. You have no authority to fire people. You have no authority to discipline people. You have no authority to incentivize safety in a positive manner. You have none of this stuff. And often the C-suite does not. It's been my experience the overwhelming majority of times that I've had uh, been on sites now over 30 years where they don't necessarily have your back, especially a lot of the mid-level managers. So what are you left to do? You're left to have huge amounts of stress, health issues. I don't know what the public health uh, uh, situations are, but I see a lot of people with diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, just personality disorders from being abused. I didn't realize how bad of an issue it was, at least in my world, in my sphere, until a couple years ago where I gave a presentation at Rutgers uh, for, as part of the OSHA Outreach Recertification Program, I believe it was construction, where I went through and I talked about Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. And we went through the whole thing, item by item by item, and the 13, I think it's 13 rules that are there. Anyway, at the end of it, there was silence. And that's what we're here for, is to describe to you what situations you may have. Maybe give you an idea how I or other people have resolved them. Safety FM, the network we're on, in a broader sense, always discusses mental health issues, suicide, things of that nature. And it's to one, encourage you if you are feeling suicidal, you have mental health issues, there is there are resources out there. You can get resources, you can get help. They're all out there, all over the place, all over the internet, you can Google it. Number one. Number two is, what are we going to do? How do we react to this? So part of the thing that we do is, is we try to give you ideas of what to expect then encourage you to find solutions on your own. And as I discussed with a colleague earlier this week, there things are not as bad as they seem. You're living in a moment, you're being stressed out and everything. Things may not be as bad as you seem. Often they're not. I'm going to say the overwhelming majority of times things are not as bad as they seem. It's a way of manipulating you a lot of times because people are manipulated by emotion and you're being manipulated to be controlled and everything else. And there are multiple ways you can be manipulated. Second thing is this, a lot of numbers here. The 
in the long term, things have a tendency of working out. That's what life experiences. Things have a tendency of working out. And you may, you may be in the darkest depths of your life right now. There is light at the end of the tunnel. You're going to get out of it. You're going to thrive. You're not only going to survive, you're going to thrive. And you need to address your mental health status. So if you're feeling suicidal, you have long bouts of depression, anxiety, things of that nature, it's not a bad thing to get help. Because if you're going to get help, you're going to be a better safety professional. You're going to go back there and you're going to be able to fight that safety war against the hazards and the attitudes and everything else in the workplace that we have to endure. Or safety wars, this is Jim Polzel. You can catch us online on most podcast platforms, all I know of, all the major ones, and here on LinkedIn or YouTube or Facebook or wherever you're viewing us. For Safety Wars, this is Jim Polzel. In the professional safety community, communication and planning are just a few keys to your program's success. The question many practitioners have is, where do I start? Dr. Jay Allen, the creator of the Safety FM platform and host of the Rated R Safety Show, has built a global foundation to help you along the way. Go to safetyfm.com and listen to some of the industry's best and most involved professionals, including Blaine Hoffman with the Safety Pro, Sam Goodman with the Hop Nerd, Sheldon Primus with the Safety Consultant, Jim Pozell with Safety Wars, Emily Elrod with Unapologetically Bold, and many others. As individuals, we can do great things, but as a team, we become amazing. Dial into safetyfm.com today and surround yourself with a powerful force of knowledge and support. Is your safety training old, stale, and hackneyed? Is your safety trainer still preaching a warped version of behavior-based safety? How about safety training that actually addresses your hazards in your workplaces and is not standardized baloney from 25 years ago? Contact the Safety Wars team at safetywars.com or call Jim Polzel at 845-269-5772. Remember, if you're receiving this message, you are the solution to unsafe workplaces. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.